listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We have Dr. Eric Collins joining us all the way up from Ontario, Canada. In this episode, we have him sharing his lived experience and teaching us about the social dependence of substance use, the consequences, and the healing. Please join us for this special episode, and I'm going to turn it over to Paula to give us a proper introduction. Okay, we're very excited to have Eric on the show tonight. He is a listener of the podcast and reached out in terms of an introduction. Eric is an assistant professor in the School of Health Studies and the Department of Psychology at Western University in London, Ontario, Canada. He holds a PhD in Health and Rehabilitation Sciences and teaches a variety of undergraduate courses covering topics such as mental health, mental illness, drug use, recovery, health psychology, as well as stress and coping. Eric's also a qualitative researcher with an interest in adolescent substance use. Uh, He's particularly interested in the risk factors associated with the development of substance use disorders. And he's uh, also a certified mental health peer support worker and identifies as someone in recovery. So we're really thrilled to have you and to have this um, lens. And especially, I love having teachers and educators on the podcast, like Dr. Peg Collins. I mean, because you're just, you're so used to teaching and explaining things. It's just a pleasure to listen to you. So thanks so much for joining, Eric. And and yeah, let's get going. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm truly honored to be here. And, and, you know, listening to that introduction, sometimes it's hard for me to to realize that, yeah, that, that is me. Because if you told 14 or 16 year old Eric that this is what you'd be doing when you're 38, there's no chance and you know what, that I would believe you. So yeah, so the first thing I'm going to say is that, you know, I I truly believe that recovery is possible for anybody. And I mean, but it may not be, you know, if, let's say I identify as somebody in recovery, but I'm still actively using a substance for for some folks in the clinical world, or maybe even not in the clinical world will not necessarily view me as somebody who's in recovery or even having success whatsoever, because I'm still using the substances. Yet, you know, I may have gone California sober or reduced my degree of substance use and, you know, repaired my relationship with my child or my loved one or my community or whatever the case may be. So in that sense, recovery is happening. Yeah, that's a good, that's interesting look at recovery. And you're right, right? It's not so black and white. It's not just sober or not sober or abstinent or using. There's all kinds of functionality and quality of life issues that are involved in that. And and so we I think we're just only beginning to understand that the world of we being, you know, medical providers, healthcare providers, and people who don't have an experience, lived experience um, of substance use and substance dependence. So yeah, so tell us a little bit about your origin story and how you ended up here and how it relates. Yeah, so um origin of my my path or my story behind my experiences with substances begins at a, quite a young age. So when I was, you know, about 11 or, or 10 or 11 years old, cigarettes were all the, you know, the craze in, in, 
in, in my elementary school or my primary school, as we as you would call it down south. And uh, so, you know, kids would bring cigarettes to school and, you know, they kind of stored in little candy packages. And because it was all we had to hide our, you know, what was going on. Right. And so so that's where it began. And, you know, it's not like we were smoking packs of cigarettes. We just kind of smoke them when we could find them. And that would be the end of it. And then we, you know, soon after that, we started to get access to those little like sort of sampler bottles of alcohol. You know, if you bought like a 20, uh, 40 ounce bottle of, of alcohol from the, you know, the liquor store, you'd get a little sampler, a couple shots in there. Some kid would bring it to the sleepover and we down the, the, the liquor and, you know, play video games and have some jokes and, but it wasn't really much more than that until, you know, probably around the age of 12 or 13 when, for me, I would even say that like, I was sort of a late bloomer, if you will, when it comes to using substances, because by that point, some of my closest friends had already, you know, smoked cannabis and been drunk before. And I, you know, I was at that time, 12, 13, I was still sort of resisting for whatever reason. I I, I felt like that was just not something that I wanted to do. And so I, I would come up with excuses when my friends would bring it around oh, you know, we could get caught or I don't, you know, maybe my, the, the peer pressure was pretty strong to engage and to experience this. And it seemed to be like this fun thing that I was missing out on. And so uh, that I had consumed cannabis. And I remember one of my earliest sort of, I guess my memory of that event was that, you know, I had been drinking alcohol before I consumed cannabis. And so within a few seconds after I inhaled, I thought, no big deal. I don't really feel anything. But then I started to spin and I threw up and that was the end of that. And, you know, I, one thing I always say to people is how your body responds to your fir- first experience with whatever drug it is you consume is quite telling, I think. And I, I moving on turned into, you know, the next day my buddy came back down and there we were getting high and going to get pizza and having a good time on our bikes. We're still kids, right? We're still young kids doing kid things and but I quickly realized like that second time, especially like, oh, like I, I, I like this. Like this is a different lens of the world and one where really the beginning of my substance use disorder, because from that point on, things really picked up quickly and steamrolled into like, OK, well, this is this is my life now. And, and be, being high and, and going to school only made things worse. And so I can, you know, it was failing courses and. You know, I stopped playing competitive sports. I, I, my friend group changed, and and the group that I found myself in was, you know, very much substance use was a requirement, truly, to to hang. And so, level or my degree of substance use really picked up, and I learned a lot. Engage in kid activities without getting high first, and that sort of turned out to be a theme throughout the remainder of my adolescence. So the lens through which I saw the world was always high. I, I, frankly, I was high most of my adolescence. Most of my waking hours, I was high. And so I never really got the chance to view the world through a straight straight lens. And I think that really impacted you know, my development into what some people would refer to as harder drug, uh, which, by the way, I don't, I don't view things as hard and soft, but that's just, you know, it's the language. And this, I don't know if this is too personal, but do you feel like you had some vulnerabilities to set you up for that, that kind of need or that, you know, when you had cannabis the second time and you were like, okay, I like this, the world is not as serious. Did you find the world prior to that a little bit too 
like anxiety provoking or you know st- overstimulating and then the the cannabis use kind of made everything more bearable or was it just purely fun and good just a good time to then proceed doing everything you know with cannabis on board if you can absolutely i was vulnerable i had family life was very shaky at home uh through the lens of my eyes at 13 14 years old i wouldn't you know i probably thought like oh well my parents don't get along but that's not no big deal right it's johnny's parents are the same way or you know there's there's kinds of intergenerational trauma if you will so and of course there there is a you know a history a family history of substance use disorder as we would call it now and the first time i took a prescription opioid now this is something that i was prescribed as i had a surgery at a but i got prescription opioids as a result within minutes of taking the first opioid quickly soon after i felt that euphoria and it was nothing like i'd ever experienced before and i uh, I, I realized too somehow i and I, I don't have an explanation for this but i realized like this could be a very serious problem for me therefore i'm going to not use these and i went through the first bottle quite quickly so i think i must have had that thought afterwards because you know on the bottle it said take when needed and so i would and uh, i quickly went through the bottle went to see a follow-up uh surgeon to sort of just check on the recovery of the, the the surgery and he accused me of selling selling the pills on the street because i went through them so quickly and i'm going no i i i didn't i just i took them when when as needed and and you know now i i don't have any left and so we had that sort of awkward exchange and like my mom was in the room and it was really weird but then he ended up prescribing me another bottle uh but at that point i had already decided that you know what i'm just gonna sort of tough this out and, and not use any more of these drugs but somehow i dodged that bullet and, and i'm i'm thankful that i did because i think it, it probably could have taken me down and, and it yeah that's so true just like going back a little bit like when you're talking about just back to your family of origin when you were first started using and you you're describing kind of the classic kind of personality changes and you already had already it sounds like some disruption already in the home and that was kind of your vulnerabilities were there any signs did your parents take any action when did they find out about your substance use when did you first like enter treatment when did you feel like you had a problem or was that years and years later? Yeah. So good question. And I should preface this with, yes, I love my parents and, you know, they did their best for me. Neither one of them, they probably didn't know what, what they didn't know. And so they... Exactly. Your story is probably very classic. Most like patients that you see, because you you do a lot of, you know, adolescent like research too. And, and our adolescent patients come in and usually the problem has been six to 10 years before family members or anyone knows. Yeah. And, and I, I would say that I sort of fell into the category of, of adolescents who didn't necessarily, like I didn't really have have to hide my substance use. But I do recall one early experience, especially with cannabis, my, uh, I had must just smoked and went home or we you know, was on the street and my mother was like, oh, why, why are your eyes red? And, and I was like, oh, I'm just, I don't know, allergies or something. I just kind of threw her a line. And that was it, really. That was the extent of the conversation. It was kind of a little smirk. And like I said, it was really very much a rite of passage. And so it's like they knew, but there wasn't a concern there. And 
at family gatherings and stuff, if a kid got, you know, got into some alcohol, it was, you know, laughed at or these substances were present and they were normalized. By the time my family began to be concerned about my substance use or really, truly the state of my mental health wasn't until I was about 18, 19, 20 years old. And by that time, I was coming forth to them saying, I think, you know, I think I need help. Like there's something going on here, but the wheels are already starting to fall off. And I'm not, at that time interested i don't even really know that i have a problem or yeah so what happened like you said something kind of pivotal happened and so tell us about that yeah so i should sort of like like of course i can't tell my whole story because it's just we'd be here for days but i'll sort of lead up to to how i got to the point where i decided to change by the time like as i said by the time i was 16 i was pretty well smoking cannabis every day. And that really was my drug of choice. I, I, I consumed tobacco every day as well to smoke cigarettes. But I couldn't, I couldn't mix alcohol with cannabis. Because as I said, like in my initial experience, I, I would spin. So as I said, by the time I was 16, I was high all the time, every day, multiple times a day smoking, I didn't have, you know, a job, uh, well, a legal job, you know, by about the age of 17, I got introduced to cocaine for the first time. And by that point, I'd already consumed magic mushrooms, psilocybin, different sort of cannabis related drugs. A mutual friend brought cocaine and he said, well, you know, I've got this. And he pulled out a bag and put it on the table and said, if you want, you know, if you want a line, throw me 20 bucks and we'll do one together and we'll make the trade. And he said, sure. So did my first line and the rest is history. As they say, I went home quickly. You know, I felt that those, that stimulating effect, that rush, the sun seemed brighter, the, you know, I, I had more energy, I was in a good mood, that progressed quite quickly, because soon after, it's like the cat was out of the bag, and, and our, my peer group sort of really jumped on that train of cocaine, if, if, if we can say it that way, and everybody was doing it, and it became the main event of our Fridays and Saturday nights, you know, we hundreds of dollars and thousands of dollars were being exchanged and drugs were being consumed in addition to the, the menu of drugs that we were already using. But for me, I couldn't, I couldn't commit to that financial. I didn't have the resources. So I was sort of a, a hanger on, if you will. And if somebody was willing to, Hey, here you go. Then I would jump in. But as I said, that really, those, then it went from, you know, Friday and Saturday, Saturdays to, you know, during the week, okay, well, you know, there are other ways that you can consume cocaine. And I discovered that, well, you can, you can smoke cocaine crack into our cannabis. And we'd call that chronic or, you know, be hush hush about that at the party. People would just think, oh, you're just smoking a joint or whatever. Right. But that was a little something extra in there. And I realized quickly that like, I like that, like, I like that version of, or that route of administration, because you know, it wasn't, you know, if you were doing powder cocaine, you'd have to sneak off to the bathroom or it was very, you know, you're sniffing and trying to, it's just this awkward sort of thing where with the crack, it was, you could hide it, right? And I think that, and, and still experience the joy, if you will, the euphoria from the substance. And so, you know, I did get into that and then I sort of just see the writing on the wall, like this is, I, I can't live like this. Like I, like this can't be my path. I have to do something here. And I quickly realized that, um, you know, using those types of drugs, it's, I, I need to cut that out because that that's the problem, right? And, and not the cannabis, which by the way, still is. And at that point, my drug of choice. So I'm just going to stick with that. I wasn't ready to call it quits on everything. 
because I didn't think I had a problem with the cannabis. So, but I, but I did make a conscious effort to quit using all those other substances. I guess the trade-off there was that I really doubled down on the cannabis and the amount that I was smoking daily really, really increased. And I had a little job back then. It was a full-time job. Didn't pay well. It was at like, you know, I was working at a factory somewhere and any of the money that I made, I, you know, I would put towards cannabis and be high at work, come home, get high, rinse and repeat 24 seven, you know, all the time. And, uh, but that started to catch up to me. And by that, I mean, like it started to really affect my mental health and, you know, the paranoia got, got really bad where everything I, I just could, I was, I was so suspicious of everyone and everything. And that's really, that's really interesting. Did you have any insight at that time or did that take some time to get that, that it was coming from the substances that you were using? As you know, it's not unusual for some folks to feel that paranoia when they consume cannabis. But for me, it's like once it got to the point where it was really sustained and quite heightened and affecting me like physiologically, I was like, oh, like this is not I don't like this. All of a sudden, when I would get high on the cannabis, that's what I would experience the paranoia and the agitation. And it's like, well, what this is not why 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 am I having this experience now? I mean, now I know, of course, that that can happen even to the most seasoned cannabis consumers that eventually sort of just get to that point where it starts to hit you differently. Now, of course, it it just started to become so intense that I realized, okay, well, when I'm not high, I don't have these paranoid feelings and experiences. And so let's lay off of that for a bit, like the cannabis and see how how I respond. And I responded well, the paranoia sort of drifted off into the background and uh but there was a cost to pay there and and the cost was that i distanced myself from my friends in that case my my best friend and my my peer group because i couldn't just be in that environment and not participate it was this awkward sort of situation and something that i'm probably going to try to coin if you will is social dependence and now there is a conversation or it's well known that you know you could be physiologically dependent on substances psychologically dependent as well too but there's also a social dependence and i think anyone really that has experienced a substance use disorder will tell you that you know yes even for folks that end up using alone uh and maybe that's what they do primarily now at some point in the journey you were very much tethered to you know either a peer group or somebody uh, and well connected with them and, and using together. And so, you know, I do hear this this idea floating around that um, the opposite of addiction, uh, of addiction is connection. But for me, that doesn't ring true because while I was addicted, I was very deeply connected to social groups and to people, including family. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think that's true, especially with alcohol. Because that's socially acceptable and we have so many of our patients, you look at holidays, family events, and you have alcohol that's there and they're trying to maintain their sobriety, but now they're in a really uncomfortable situation because it's like you said, even family, you can't even, they don't even feel like they can be around their family and their new situation. I really like that term, that social dependence, it's very isolating. So I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I, I mean, in many ways, it's 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 a requirement 
to, to hang. You know, if you want to chill with this group of people, you're getting high. You know, and if you're not, then you're square and you're out of here kind of deal. So it just, as I said, with that social dependence piece, and as you were saying, Darlene, with, you know, being, you know, baked into our culture with family and tradition and things like that, you can't just isolate, you can't just say, okay, well, now you as an individual are just going to stop using a substance, but carry on with your life and, and, and good luck. Well, you know, every life is baked into the substance use disorder or the substance use disorder is baked into that. And so not reasonable or logical to just, you know, try to eliminate one behavior and put that person back into those same environments because, and then, and that's why people relapse or slip up because it's, it, that is where they are in life. And so, so I kind of look at, I had sort of three recoveries, if you will. I have the recovery from the hard drugs, right? Which I quit by the time I was about 19. I have recovery from cannabis, which I quit by the time I was about 20, 21. And then I have recovery from alcohol, which I gave up by the time I was about 28. My pathway towards my abstinence-based recovery, which I exist in now, was not like a cut and dry, okay, all of a sudden now I'm sober or clean from everything. It took a long time to get to where I'm at today. And in that time, it just so happened that cannabis became legalized in Canada. And little did I know at that time that this was going to be a problem for me. I should have known, as I said, cannabis was my drug of choice. And so, you know, like that life was or that social life was gone. Like, I'm sure if I really worked hard, I could find somebody. But the ease of having it at a dispensary down the road now sort of opened up the opportunity for me to sort of get curious and one day, you know, somebody close to me during the pandemic 2020. So, yeah, I have these uh, these gummies that I take and uh, they're CBD and, you know, they don't get you high and there's no THC in there. And I was like, well, why do you take them? Well, they, they just make me feel relaxed and stuff. And I thought, you know, I was feeling pretty stressed out from the pandemic. I, You know, I was, it's not something that I necessarily had conducted a lot of research on because my initial research was on prescription drug abuse and I had done some research on some other substances but cannabis I kind of left to my lived experiences with it and my knowledge about it quite limited but I read up on CBD and I thought okay this sounds like a good it sounds like for me I'm gonna give it a shot but before I tried it, I was Googling, you know, I'm like, hey, uh, you know, if somebody uses CBD while they're in recovery, does that mean that you've relapsed? And I, I couldn't really I couldn't find anything in the in the peer review literature. I, I was even having trouble looking on like blogs and forum posts to get a solid answer for this. And there were sort of mixed messages. But I thought, you know what, I'm not going to get high on it. Let's give it a go. Guess what? I felt euphoric and right away that addiction monster that lives inside my brain was like, yep, you're, you're back baby. And so the next day I was back there dropping hundreds of dollars on all kinds of CBD products. And I'm, I'm start, I'm not doing my work and, and I'm not really spending time with my family and my, I'm just thinking about this all the time, totally activated. And th- this is CBD. We're talking the next sort of phase of that was I wanted to know that I could smoke cannabis flower, cannabis bud, and not experience the paranoia like I did all those years ago. Because I did have, by the way, a huge panic attack, which was the last time that I smoked cannabis when I was 20. And I heard this on one of your earlier shows. You had, you had a two-part episode on cannabis. 
I forget the name of the the, the guest. It was it was awesome. I was listening yeah, to it. Yeah, Dr. Howell. Yes. Beth Howell. Yeah. Not, not, not your mother's marijuana. And and yeah. I, I'm I'm so thankful that you put that episode out there. There was some conversation about like like for me, having that panic attack is not something that I had, had ever experienced. But there was a sort of a gap between it like activated depression and anxiety immediately. I went home and all of a sudden I had a mental illness. Cannabis has caused me the most problems that still exist to this day in my life. But the message that I'm trying to get across here is that, you know, with the CBD, it eventually got to the point where now it's sort of fast track to where I am uh, during the pandemic 2020. Another thing, too, is that I do take an SSRI medication interacting with the the medication or I did learn later on through some research that it's sort of something to do with the metabolism of the CBD and the medication that it's sort of I guess the the CBD will take priority. I don't maybe you can explain this better than me, but it felt like I was going through withdrawal on my SSRI. So here I was dosing the CBD, trying to like feel normal because my medication's not working. And so that's when I realized, okay, you know, maybe CBD's becoming a problem. But my answer to that was, well, maybe now it's time to get off the SSRIs and I'll just dose up on the CBD and that will be my medication, which of course was not a good decision. But eventually my mind went somewhere thinking that because I'm not really having the effect that I want from the CBD, then maybe I'll try with a little bit of THC in there. And so I, you know, I brought some home and did the, did the THC and it was like low, it was like 2% or something and boom, panic attack right away. And I was like, oh my God, I'm back to this. It's been like, you know, so after that, I said, okay, no more CBD, no nothing. I can, clearly I've learned my lesson here. I'm at like, I, this had to happen. I needed to know I had this experience. We're done. Move on with your life. It wasn't that simple because within about a week, my mood was just, I, I, I couldn't feel happy. I was my, it's like any progress that I had made with my mental illness and my recovery was completely gone. I was back to, to basics. I would say now was uh, dissociation. Although I existed in my mind, my physical body was not mine. You know, I could see my hand, but it like wasn't really mine. I was, and this was scaring the hell out of me because I thought, uh, now I, I've done it to myself. I'm trapped now. Like I've, I, I'm going to be stuck like this forever. And this is, this is my, this is my worst nightmare. So do you think probably... do you think that was related to the withdrawal or do you think it's still because you had been using heavily and frequently for a, a little a time period then and we know that like the cannabis and the CBD is you know theorized that these store in the fat cells and continue to dump in the system for a while so do you think you were still just getting some of the like anxiety and paranoid behaviors that were maybe causing some of that or do you think it was withdrawal symptoms yeah it, it makes sense but the way i've because you know i've spent some time thinking about this the way i understand it is that you know the thc induced you know because you have substance induced disorders yes. or substance induced experiences right so i had a substance induced panic attack the panic attack was traumatic to me especially psychologically right and so i think my response to that like the dissociation is a response to the trauma the panic attack from the thc yeah well you bring up a very interesting dilemma that we're experiencing as a whole 
society, right? That we know now, well, we know clinically, I mean, when I was doing inpatient um, work with people who were suffering from substance use disorder, like more severe, right? They had to be hospitalized. One of my first patients that I had was a patient with cannabis induced, you know, psychiatric illness. And it was, it was really interesting. I mean, interesting, I'm saying that with compassion, because he had no other, he wasn't using kind of typical psychosis inducing drugs like stimulants and no family history of you know schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or anything like that but it was so it was clearly cannabis induced severe anxiety dissociation psychosis and it went on for several weeks he was admitted to the hospital for about two or three weeks and i think you know we're seeing this right we're seeing vulnerable brains whether it's genetic like you said you have some genetic susceptibility that are now being triggered by this high potency thc especially or repeated use so you classic example of that as an adolescent you used heavily used from a young age and you had that vulnerability. And that's why we're seeing increased rates of bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and suicidal ideation, as well as other conditions related to cannabis use. And it's devastating because it is normalized and it is legalized and it is part of social culture and norms, much like alcohol. But for many people, not everybody, for many people, it's devastating. And it's actually long, it, it has longitudinal devastating effects, you know, so I'm sorry that happened to you. And that you that you had to figure it out and then had to re-experience it, especially during pandemic yeah. when it's already so oh. stressful. You poor thing. Well, and and I think the interesting thing is, and probably because of your education and training, you figured it out. But I mean, Galpala and I can just bang our heads against the wall sometimes when you're trying to explain to a patient what's happening to them. But when you're in that state, especially that panic state, and when you talk about that dissociative type state, I can't imagine. But when we're trying to tell them that, hey, it's this substance is triggering it, because what does someone do when they're completely on their own? Well, they just want to use more because it's the natural human need is to avoid pain and suffering. And so they're going to use what's available. And so they tend to just keep using more and more. But you figured out that was the problem. This is what we keep saying. This is your problem. You didn't feel better right away. And I think, I mean, that's a hard thing to say to people that you feel really terrible next week, but it's still from the substance. That's a hard thing. You know, and I had to come to terms quickly. You can't even consume tea or coffee because caffeine induces my anxiety. And and if I take a lot, I can start to feel, you know, that paranoia and sort of as strange as that sounds, I'm just hypersensitive to substances. And so I know truly the only option for me is abstinence. If I want to have any sort of quality of life, that's the path I have to go. And so again, like I said, the, the consequences associated, it's really what keeps me on, on the straight and narrow. And at the end of the day, it's you know, the the quality of the, the friends and the family that you have. And so if you're still using and you're in that situation, that's that's a really good sign, you know. And and if you get to abstinence through harm reduction, then great. But if it never if it abstinence doesn't happen for you, that doesn't mean that you failed. It doesn't mean that you're a lower tier of recovery. It is it is what it is, you know. That's that's the way I look at it. Right. I love that. That's so poignant. And there are many paths to recovery, right? You you said yours, you took each substance and there was a reason why you gave it up, right? Cannabis initially and then cocaine and other drugs and then back to CBD and cannabis alcohol in there as well. Some people are able to turn on a dime. I mean, we've seen people who are just like, and I'm done. 
you know, whatever, they walk away from everything and other people don't do that. You know, they can't do that. And I think everyone's different. Everyone has a different reason for, or not, no reason for getting, you know, off of substances. I think that's, that's the world we live in as medical providers anyway, is we've got to realize what to identify what people want. And you talked about the negative consequences and that's the very definition of a substance use disorder is use in spite of a negative consequence. So once people are at that point, their substance use has negative consequences, then our role is just to see what they want and align with their goals and use the evidence and the science to see if we can help them achieve their goal. You know, once you see what happens in the brain, neuroplasticity and all the changes when people actually do stop using a substance that's been used over and over again, it's incredible. And it's a lot of work that it takes to undo all of those changes, both on a chemical level and on a practical level and at a social level, all the different areas. But you know what? I, I, I like that. And uh, for me, like neuroscience, brain science, if you will, that brings me comfort knowing like I teach a course on stress and coping. And we do have a, uh, a lecture or a segment on the physiological response to stress, right? And when I explain things, it, it, again, it brings me comfort knowing that it's not just all in my head. You know, we have the endocrine system and all these things happening inside of us that, that you know, we can't see can help us understand why we are doing the things we the way we are. In working within a clinic in a non-clinical role, seeing people that had uh, stimulant use disorders. It's like, like, like I was, and you started experiencing psychosis and it's just so, it's so awful to see. And they may not be able to come back. They may not be able to, the, whatever version of them existed before that may, may be gone completely because of those changes to the brain. So that is, no, no that, you're, it's very true when you talk <laughs> about methamphetamines and tragically seeing some of that. I mean, I'm sure you see this in in the in the clinical setting, but you'll you may have family or loved ones that come in that let let's say this is their first time in in the treatment center with their loved one, and like they may be under the impression that okay, that, you know Johnny's going to stay here for a week, and we're going to resolve this, and then he'll be better, and we'll be back to to normal kind of thing. They don't understand that this is a lifelong, for many people, this is going to be a lifelong thing. And But I would say that as clinicians, you know, for, for you working in the field, like I'm so, I, I admire, like the, the fact that you've chosen this path and were formally educated, maybe in a different law, maybe that's where I would have end, ended up. But I think that the fact that you've actively chosen to get into this field is so admirable. And I, I just want to thank you and acknowledge the work that you've done and that you will continue to do. But I will say this is that I think, and I'm sure you've had this experience before where you feel defeated because despite pouring maybe even your heart and soul into a case, you know, there's a relapse or it doesn't seem to be getting the, the thing that I would say to, to the two of you and to anyone else working in the field is to, you know, just be mindful of that and, and, and like really take care of yourself as best as you can. And I'm sure this goes without saying just being in working in this field and being, you know, around people who are struggling can have a, you know, it can, can take a toll on you just as it does to their family and their loved ones. Right. And so uh, support, or maybe even like, like, I don't like, do you plan on working in this field for the rest of your life? Are you sort of now established 
as addiction medicine doctors and you can't sort of change gears or what, what is that? See, I'll just answer to myself. I find this work to be so incredible. I couldn't imagine doing any other work. Like I, Darlene and I are both family medicine doctors or GPs and addiction trained docs. And I definitely don't do as much or hardly any family medicine anymore. I do integrated medicine with my addiction patients like I treat the hepatitis C and all you know a lot of psychiatry but I can't for a while I went back to just strict family medicine and I was just like pining inside because this work is so meaningful and it's I just feel like it's such an honor and there's a personal connection I think for a lot of people too and that's true for me in terms of family history or personal experiences so I think a lot of people who end up in this work find it so meaningful we can't imagine doing anything else but I think you're right there's vicarious trauma just hearing yeah. stories and feeling so you know impacted by people experiencing such struggles and and um hearing their their stories and as for where I work right now people experience extreme social stresses of homelessness and food scarcity and intergenerational trauma, abuse, um, interpersonal violence, incest. And it, it's hard not to bring that home. But at the same time, it, it feels um, like I'm the lucky one. And and how do we deal with it? Well, we have each other and we talk and colleagues. And then, you know, we have other ways to kind of work things out. But that's my response to that question. Yeah, I think I couldn't say it better than Paula. It's sometimes in some ways, I mean, I hate to use the term, but it's almost like a calling. Like once you're in it, you can't, you can't imagine doing anything different. When you work in this field, it is sometimes really challenging because our patients, the consequences of their substance use is so devastating. It's not like just our patients that I take care of with diabetes that have just some physical and mental consequences maybe, but these patients, it's just the social consequences are so tragic. And and do you carry that with you? Yes, because we're human. It's making sure that we create a community, that we're supporting each other. We make sure that we have enough outside time. That's why we have good hobbies outdoors. <laughs> could be very restorative, but I think that's important. You really did, you know, your story with cannabis use to me was really salient I think it's because we're so impacted as clinicians with the negative effects of cannabis and feel like and obviously some people do fine with it but we're constantly seeing the negative consequences and to hear yeah. firsthand that you struggled with it is meaningful to me so personally i appreciate your story and thank you for being vulnerable and sharing and thank you so much for being on the podcast really uh wonderful to have you yeah thank oh. you appreciate your time no problem mm -hmm. it was a it was a pleasure until next time Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com.
podcasts are for entertainment and education purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from this source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.